if you want to cultivate a habit, don't set a goal. That thing has to happen every single day and twice on the days when you don't want to do it. And when it breaks you, then you know it's changed who you are. You know, can you answer the question, who am I, without telling me what your name is, what your sex is, what your age is, what job you do, what your surname is, what company you have, what is your title that you call? If you remove all of this, do you even know who you are? So you've got to force yourself to make that which is unfamiliar, familiar, that which is uncomfortable, comfortable. That's the only way you're going to make that which is impossible, possible. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to the Next Move podcast. And if this is your first time on the show, we're a podcast that share the strategies, stories, and tools behind people who are making an impact in India. And today I am extremely excited to have Shama Valabji with me because he is so many things. He is a performance coach. He's a motivational speaker. He's a sports scientist. He's an author. He's an entrepreneur. And the list just goes on. But for the purpose of today's podcast, we're going to be talking about how do you bring the peak principles of peak performance from athletes and apply it into our regular lives? You know, what is it about athletes that allows them to perform at such a high level, at such high stress levels? And how can we bring that into our lives? So whether it's nutrition, sleep, exercise routines, how do we feel high energy every single day? And Shamal, I'm so excited to explore this with you. So how are you? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you so much, Arman, for getting me on the show. Uh, I'm thoroughly excited about this. I've been looking forward to it for some time. So uh, we can peel away the layers. I like the topic. I like the topic of performance and how we can distill it down into everyone's life. Uh, I like, uh, I sit between the confluence of the mind and the body. So that's always an interesting relationship between the two. And uh, because I approach things from uh, two lenses, I approach them from an ancient wisdom or Vedic sciences lens and from a lens of modern physiology and psychology. So, you know, uh, it's really a knife edge that I'm sitting on. So this is going to be an interesting conversation for sure. And, and that's why I loved and loved researching about this podcast and loved about you because you're so different than other sports scientists who mainly focus on one specific area of the field, but you focus on the mind, relationships, the body, our emotion, you, you focus on a holistic perspective. And I think that really applies to all of us. So, you know, uh, how did holism come into being was uh, I studied my undergrad degrees actually in sports science and sports science is the science of performance or the impact of exercise on the human body. And I worked with professional athletes and I realized that, you know, I would be running a whole battery of tests with them. And after running a battery of tests, they'll probably tick, mock, tick box every single variable physiologically, supremely fit in the top one or two percentile of it. And yet when they go out there and perform, they fail, you know, uh, or they're not successful in whatever shape and form we deem that. And I realized that uh, physiology is important, but it's not the holy grail. Okay. And that's what made me delve into sort of uh, psychology. Then even peeling away the rays of psychology, there's so much from goal setting to subconscious programs to really understanding all of this. And I realized that there's an intrinsic relationship between these two. Then coming back into, so I moved from the body to psychology. From psychology, I moved to spirituality. From spirituality, I came back to the body, realizing that my initial approach to the body was very Western science and that the Vedic approach to optimizing the body and healing it made more sense to me. So I went 360 degrees back. And then I come from it from a holistic point of view because, you know, it's actually holism is not my theory. Holism was a theory that belonged to Professor Alfred Adler who said you got to approach the body as a whole, as an interrelated, interdisciplined system. And, and you know, that me was the fundamental thing that really uh, made the penny drop because so much of medicine is not thought as a holistic science. And, and one of the best examples I can give you is you take cancer. In India, we have about 2 million cases of new cancer patients every single year. Okay. And a cancer patient will be treated by an oncologist. Now, if you look at an oncologist, he would study seven years of an MBBS degree, and then he'd probably go into five to six years of specialization. Okay. 
in those 13 to 14 years, he probably doesn't even spend 24 to 48 hours in understanding nutrition, right? And understanding the impact of neurochemicals or the, sorry, nutrients in the body in terms of healing. Okay. Now, that is the first thing you change in a cancer patient, isn't it? You change their nutrition because that's how, how you're going to help them heal. Now, I realize that if you look at this ideology and extrapolate this right through every science, it's exactly the same that the fundamental building blocks in healing the body are actually not taught to the people who are practicing that science, which is why I've gone into really approaching things holistically and really being the person who questions the answers, peels away the layers to show people that, you know what, there is far more than the ICs when it comes to healing the body and unlocking performance. And that, that's so crazy to me that they spend, you said 24 to 34 or 48 hours on nutrition but that's yeah. ev everything that we eat, we are, right? We're, we're a representation of, of what we do. And that's, it's, it's incredible to me because it's so much. And I found that doctors also, they're so busy all the time, right? From, from morning to night, that how do you catch up on the research, on the latest research from what's going on? So it's, it's incredibly challenging for them. And, and that's why it's so um, refreshing to see a holistic perspective of it. And I, I really want to before we get into what I want to be kind of like a cheat sheet for people, what can you take away and what can you go research to be able to feel at a peak performance? I want to ask you, what, what do you think of the term peak performance or high performance? What, what does it mean to you? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, coming from the word or world of professional sport, uh, high performance and peak performance is really operating at that top one percentile of that society or community. But really, if we distill it down, Peak performance is a mindset. It's a mindset towards ensuring that you're continuously growing and getting better in that field, in whatever, irrespective of what those verticals are. They could be mentally, it could be physically, it could be emotionally, spiritually, technically. The mere fact that you're absorbing a mindset that's making you better every single day, you're trying to get that 1% better. Sports science is the science of incremental gains, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get incremental gains with every intervention we bring into play. And that is a peak performance or a high performance mindset. So that's what, that mind, that's what it is. It isn't about saying that I'm the best in the field. That's not high performance. High performance is a mindset that says that I am committed towards personal growth and personal mastery. I'm committed towards becoming the best version of myself and constantly shattering all my limiting beliefs and shattering that glass ceiling. And for the purposes of this conversation, that's a beautiful definition for which our audiences can really adopt into their lives. No, I, I really like what you said. And, and I wanna start with probably the thing that a lot of us struggle with most, and it's kind of the building block of everything to come. It's, it's the mindset, and which you've talked so much about, the mentality. Now, I know you went to an ashram after a tough time. Your story is so incredible, by the way. You grew up in South Africa during the apartheid, for people who don't know this, tried to be a professional cricketer, and just because of, of these rules of segregation, it wasn't possible. And it, it led you at some point to go to an ashram, and you, you were there for three years. Now, a lot of us won't end up going to an ashram for three years, right? A lot, a lot, of, a lot of us won't be able to do that. But what are the principles that you learned from that experience and, and what impact did that have on you? So I think the most powerful thing that the ashram told me, what taught me was what discipline is. And, and I'll explain that to you. You know, Arman, when you go into the ashram, the first thing you have to do is start waking up at 3 a.m. or 3.30 latest because uh, your meditation starts at 4 every single day. And you're sleeping on a straw mat in a room with all the other monks. So they're going to wake you up in any case. Now, for you to wake up at 3.30 a.m., you need to be in bed no later than 9 p.m. Otherwise, you're not going to get enough rest. So the first thing is to commit to a practice of waking up at 3 a.m., you've got to commit to what time you're going to bed. So the first and most important rule, and you hear this from many scientists and physiologists, they say the biggest habit that people try to change in their life is wake up at the same time. In fact, they've got it wrong. What you need to do is go to bed at the same time. And that's what's one thing that I learned in Asha. But let's go beyond that. You know, I used to wake up every single day at 3.30 and I was sleeping really late. So which means that I was not in the bright mental state to be meditating and be fully absorbing that practice. And that goes on from 
from 4 a.m. to 7.30 a.m., you're sitting in there just chanting and meditating every single day. Now, for you to do that for three and a half hours, you really need to be, have the right presence of mind. Okay? If you don't have the presence of mind, that, that experience is going to be fruitless. Now, and that's what it was for me. So one month went, two months went, three months went, where I used to sleep late, wake up every single day. I'd be very, very extremely tired. And then one day, what happened was the penny dropped for me. Nothing particularly surprising happened. No one said anything to me, but a realization just hit me. Like, Shamal, you are here for four months already, and you're waking up every day at 3.30. If you plan to be here and wake up every day at 3.30, because that is a rule of the temple, then you better make the best of that. And if making the best of that means sleeping at night, then get to bed at night. That simple realization shifted my lifestyle and I started getting into my room at eight and getting into bed by nine. And then I was waking up fresher. Every single day that I woke up fresher, okay, I was able to concentrate more and get more out of that meditation. Now, what did that teach me? That taught me that discipline doesn't have a time frame to it. Now, you're going to read tons of books where they say, cultivate a habit in 30 days, cultivate a habit in 60 days, cultivate a habit in 100 days. That's all rubbish. Right. The truth is that for you to cultivate a habit, you have to stick to that thing for so long that it has to break you before it makes you. Right. If a habit doesn't break you, it doesn't have the potential to make you. you know? So that is what discipline is. And the only way it can break you is when there's absolutely no conceivable mental time frame in mind. As long as there is a time frame, as long as you tell your brain, I have to do this for one year, two years, even if you tell your brain I have to do it for 10 years, it will find a way to hack it. And the day 10 years is over, you will go back to normal. Right? But to make this a lifestyle, that habit has to break you. And there has to be no vision of where the end line is. That's when it becomes a habit. So the most powerful thing that I learned is that if you want to cultivate a habit, don't set a goal. That thing has to happen every single day and twice on the days when you don't want to do it. And when it breaks you, then you know it's changed who you are. And that's when that habit's really going to start working for you. So that was really uh, the second powerful thing that I learned in the temple. The third powerful thing is that we only eat two meals in the temple. So we were intermittent, we're practicing intermittent fasting way before I even knew what intermittent fasting was. You have breakfast at nine o'clock, you have lunch at two o'clock, and then there's no other meal. So from two to the next day of breakfast, we're literally fasting. Okay, so we had that intermittent fasting. But one thing that they encourage you in the temple is try to have one of those meals by yourself. Okay, but they don't tell you which one and they don't force you for which one it is. Now, what they're inadvertently teaching you is to cultivate time by yourself because that's when the greatest healing and greatest realizations happen in solitude. But to have that time by yourself, you need to cultivate how to ask for that time with compassion and empathy. Okay, you need to tell someone every day respectfully that I choose to have this meal by myself. You understand? Everyone understands it, but you still got to express it. So that's teaching you how to be aware of what you want and express what you want with compassion and empathy. And that was a fundamental thing that the, that the ashram taught me. Remember, I went into the temple with the bitterness of the apartheid, with the bitterness of segregation and discrimination. So I was angry and I was bitter. And it taught me that every message that comes out of my mouth can be a message that is loaded with compassion and love. And if you cannot say what you want to with compassion and love, you are not in a position to even voice that. You have to spend a lot more time in solitude. So the ashram for me was a very powerful experience, which taught me things that you would probably read in many books, things that you've heard many people saying. But what it gave me was the experience to quantify the impact of that in my life on a day-to-day -day basis. So when I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this because... I have felt it transform who I am and every single cell in my body. I'm just interested. Do you still wake up at 3.30 in the morning and have one meal by yourself? Do you still take these principles on today? I still practice intermittent fasting. I don't wake up mm -hmm. at 3.30. Uh, I wake up between 6 and 6.30 every single day. Uh, mm -hmm. I have my last meal by 6.37. I don't eat anything till about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I practice. The timing is shifted, but I'm practicing intermittent fasting. I spend a significant amount of time in solitude. I spend mm. an hour, hour and a half meditating every single day. I spend an hour reading minimum or journaling every single day. So a lot of these lessons are still there and are still in vibe. Maybe the time frame is a little different. Also because a lot of my work, I work with professional athletes in different time zones. So I need to be awake for a longer period of time at night. 
as an author, a lot of my writing happens in that in the, the late hours or early hours of the morning. And I want to get into journaling and your, you know, your meditation practice. But I just want to ask you one question. Do you think that it's an experience that everyone should have to do, you know, either Vipassana retreat or go to an ashram for a few months? Do you think that we need to have that experience to kind of get that enlightenment and experience, not just read it in a book, but actually experience it like you did? Yeah, you know, experience is such a powerful thing. You know, I can sit here the whole day and tell you sugar is sweet, but until you've not tasted it, you don't know what sweetness is isn't it? And it's the same mm. thing. You can read about the power of meditation the whole day, but until you've not experienced it, how will you ever know what it is and what power that it has? So yes, I would encourage everyone to if, at least start with a, a micro dose, maybe in a Vipassana, or maybe join a breathwork class or a community and start maybe 15, 20 minutes a day yourself. Uh, but the benefits are so phenomenal that it's it's probably one of the best decisions you can make for yourself so let's get into that in, in meditation because it's something that i've been trying to do recently right you know everywhere i think meditation is now the buzzword right it's it's now the the fruit juice smoothie it's it's the vegetables it's it's the common thing that a lot of people are talking about but the practice of actually doing it is so tough right you're sitting there thoughts are going through your mind and the first thing you're thinking is i'm not doing this right like I'm not feeling anything, I'm not doing it, thoughts are coming, I'm gonna quit, right? And that kind of prevents the consistency. So you did it in a much more intense way, right? You, you involved yourself and in, in completely immersed yourself into this environment, but what are some ways that people can start their meditation practice and without feeling, you know, I'm not doing this right? Well, what are kind of the beginner 101 of meditation? So the easiest thing to practice is to really stay in tune with your breath, right? And your breath has two parts to it. It has the inhalation component and the exhalation component. And in meditation, what we want to do is we really want to upregulate the prefrontal cortex. We want to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system that gets you to feel really relaxed and calmed down. And that is linked to your exhalation. So when you're sitting there and you're focusing on your breath, keep your inhalation shorter, keep your exhalation longer, and you'll find the body will just slowly calm down. All of this cortisol and adrenaline that's in your body will completely disseminate. The tension in your muscles will leave and you'll start feeling super relaxed. May, your brainwave state may even drop from what is a beta brainwave to probably a theta brainwave state. Some people who cannot hold that theta brainwave state may pass out and that's a delta brainwave state. So these are the byproducts of stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system. But I think the only way to do it is to really start linking yourself to your breath. And remember, uh, don't go into the experience of meditation with any preconceived notions. That's the problem. You go into it with an expectation that there should be no thoughts flowing through my head. I should be feeling completely zen out. I should see this white light in my head. I should feel charged and invigorated. I should lift off the ground. I don't know who you've been speaking to or what's, uh, what has been happening, but you go in with these preconceived notions. Perhaps you watch too many movies. Perhaps you've read the wrong books, whatever it is. Right? That in itself is counterintuitive to meditation. Meditation is what? It's tapping into your inner energy to experience something that you never, cannot experience outwards. And you don't want to experience another person's version of it. Right. So go in with no conceive, sit down there and allow the thoughts to come and allow them to leave. The idea of meditation is to not really be attached to anything, is to watch it, but distance yourself from it, is to become a witness to everything that's happening in your life. And therein is actually the power of meditation. In life, a particular situation may be troubling you. Perhaps you broke up with your uh, boyfriend or someone's broken up with their girlfriends or whatever it is, and that's really troubling them. In meditation, you're able to see that same experience, but not feel those same emotions. You're automatically distant from that. When this happens regularly, then you're able to distance yourself from things happening in your life without you actually doing meditation. That's the cultivation of that practice. Now, meditation is much like any other practice. It's like a muscle. You go to the gym the first day, you lift up 10 kgs, you don't get a big bicep, right? It's going consistently every single day and lifting it. And that's what actually develops your bicep. Your mind is a muscle, right? Your memory is a muscle. All of this needs to be cultivated through regular practice. It's like polishing a brass jar. You gotta polish it and polish it and polish it before it really shines. And that's what it is. Commit to the process of just staying there for five minutes, for 10 minutes, every single day, peeling away these layers 
and, and feel whatever it is. You know, some of the basic experiences is stay with your breath. I do four seconds inhalation, eight seconds exhalation. Right. Beautiful experience. So you go four in and eight out. Four in, eight out. Just doing that for the first three to four minutes will help you just reset your neurological system and you'll be in a state of calm. Then you don't have to worry, you just have to flow, watch the flow of air in and out. Once you start following that, draw your awareness deeper. Notice, is my belly rising? Is my chest rising? And I'll notice the inflow of air into my nose and out of my mouth. What's the temperature like? You know, what is, the, what is my palate like? Then we can do a mindful listening exercise where I'm just sitting with my eyes closed and I tell people, just practice this. All you need to do is while sitting there with your eyes closed, still your mind and just draw your awareness to 25 to 30 different sounds that you can hear, right? Those 25 to 30 different sounds will take you anywhere from five to 10 minutes to listen to. There could be two or three different types of birds. Those are three different sounds. It could be the AC, it could be the wind, it could be something that cracks something, it could be a rickshaw out there. Just draw your awareness to those sounds there. That's just called, that's a mindful listening exercise that's also stilling the mind. These are very beautiful, very simple exercises to cultivate the practice of mindfulness into our lives. When you become mindful, meditation becomes a lot easier. I, I just have a very specific question because this is something that I think about. Does it have to be breathe in through the nose and then out through the mouth, or can can it be through the mouth, breathe in through the mouth, and breathe out through the mouth? Well, we generally encourage breathing through the nose because it's a safer, healthier way. We've got a lot of uh, nostril hairs which filter the air in, right? Mm. And actually, uh, some Vedic scientists recommend breathing through the nose as well, breathing out through the nose as well. Okay, mm. but I recommend breathing through the mouth because with longer exhalations, it's easier to control the exhalation outside, outwards. It's very difficult for you to breathe for eight seconds or 10 seconds out through your nose. You'll find that the air just rushes out, right? In two or three seconds and then you're forcing. But with the mouth, you're able to control, have a controlled exhalation, right? And it's happening with a lot more ease. So that way there, you're also stimulating that vagus and parasympathetic nervous system. So we just definitely don't encourage breathing in through the mouth. We say breathe in through the nose and we generally some practitioners will say breathe out through the nose. Some will say breathe out through the mouth. Both of them are correct. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. And I think, you know, that's a really easy takeaway for people to go right now from tomorrow. Four seconds in, eight seconds out through the nose, through the mouth. Just do it for five to 10 minutes every day and see, you know, over a long-term period, if that can have a huge impact for your life. Now I want to talk about breath work. You know, that's part of your book as well, Breathe, Believe, Balance. And we hear a lot about breath work as well. You know, we see people like Wim Hof who have intense breathing patterns of, you know, breathe in deeply and then exhale shortly and then hold your breath. And then there's people like Laird Hamilton who have different breathing exercises. And from what I've read, it's all about just oxygenating your body. Now, can you talk about breath work and why it is so important and how we can incorporate it? I read a beautiful quote somewhere that says, when you take a deep breath, it's like, it's like writing a love note to yourself. Okay. And that's the power of breath. You know, Your breath is really the gateway to your consciousness. And that's why it's so important. But it's also the gateway to your physiology. You know, uh, Like the Wim Hof breath, uh, breathing technique, for example, is beautiful to really uh, increase the, or get that balance between carbon dioxide and oxygen in there because the holding, it's called kumbhaka. Kumbhaka is the holding phase of your breath. is extremely powerful. So holding your breath with oxygen is extremely powerful to invigorate the sympathetic nervous system. So your head will, you'll get a head rush and feel very, very light. You know, uh, holding your breath without any air in your lungs is fantastic for your chest because carbon dioxide is a bronchodilator. So these exhalation inhalation techniques of holding breath also helps to balance the CO2 and O2 uh, levels in your body. Now, different people have different breathing techniques. Some would say breathe in for four seconds, hold for seven, exhale for eight. Some would say four in, four out. Then there's a box breathing technique, which is four in, four hold, four out, four hold. They are vast. There's an entire encyclopedia of it. And each one of these have different uh, benefits on your physiology. They can only work on two systems. They can only work on your sympathetic or your parasympathetic nervous system. But really and truly, I use breath work as the gateway to your consciousness. All I'm trying to do is use your breath 
to completely down-regulate all your functioning in your body. Bring your body to a complete standstill. Still the mind. Slow the heart rate down. Slow down all the functions in the body. Bring it to rest. And when your body is not anxious, when there's no cortisol, there's no adrenal, when you're completely relaxed, you give your consciousness a chance to travel. Okay, that's what I'm using it for. Remember, I'm looking at how to get you to use your breath to be the gateway to discover who you are. That's a question I'm very, very invested in helping you answer. Who are you? Independent. And I always ask this question. I said, you know, can you answer the question, who am I, without telling me what your name is, what your sex is, what your age is, what job you do, what your surname is, what company you have, what is your title that you call? If you remove all of this, do you even know who you are? That's what I'm invested in. I'm invested in helping you discover and peel away the layers of you understanding who you truly are as a being, right? And what your purpose on earth is as a being. Right? That's what I'm looking at. So that's my journey with breath work is to use this as a gateway to the conscious. Your breath work is basically a part of your meditation practice, right? It's, it's a very yes. similar thing, four in, four out. It's very similar to four in, four out, but four in, four mm -hmm. out is a very balanced system, you know? So mm -hmm. I would use a lot more air in with my athletes when I want to invigorate them. And we see this when someone's getting a panic attack, they're breathing a lot, their heart rate goes up, they're taking in a lot of oxygen because the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated. For me, I, I have a vested interest in switching that system because when the parasympathetic nervous system is stimulated, then the rational prefrontal cortex of the brain starts working. That's when you start making good decisions, when you are no more operating from a state, from a heightened state. When the cortisol is gone, when the adrenaline is gone, when the epinephrine, norepinephrine is out of the system, then you can make good decisions. Okay. And that will only happen through longer exhalation, which is why I stress that longer exhalation. Sometimes it doesn't have to be uh, eight seconds. It can be six seconds. It can be five seconds. You know, I just try to keep that a little longer because I'm using it in meditation and I want the body to really, really relax, you know, but every now and then uh, my friend who's a great, uh, who works with Wim Hof is a brilliant breathwork expert. He's Neeraj Nayak. He's known as a renegade pharmacist. Okay, and he also has a massive encyclopedia of breathing techniques. His breathing company is called the Soma Breathwork, which is brilliant. So his Soma Breathwork, I do a lot of it just for physiology. So I do his breath, breathing techniques, sometimes in the sauna. My friend Ben Greenfield also talks about that, doing these breathworks in infrared saunas, for example, or in steam rooms. You know? So I, I use these guys just to cleanse the body, to detoxify the body. You know? But I'm using their techniques. And, and if our listeners are interested, they can check out uh, Ben Greenfield and they can also check out Soma Breath, the Neeraj Naik. And on Instagram, he's a renegade pharmacist. So Amazing. I'm going to put those links in the comment section below so all of you can check that out. And... I want to get into the, the theory of isolation because we didn't really go into that too much. And I think in today's world, right, we're, even though it's, it's COVID time, it's hard to feel isolated. You, you know, you, you may have roommates, you may be living with family or on your, you're on your phone and you're talking to someone. You don't really get that feeling of full isolation. And we're always going from one thing to the next. And it's hard to, for me. And I think a lot of people to feel when you're isolated to feel calm and to feel not to feel anxious, how do you get into a state of, of feeling completely fine and comfortable in a state of isolation? And what, what do you do to bring yourself in there? Was it tough for you at first or was it something that you were kind of naturally drawn to? It, I mean, for me, it wasn't as tough as I expected. It was a lot easier and I enjoy spending a lot more time with myself. And, uh, and the reason I enjoy it is because I know that really most introspection and learning happens by yourself. You know, you can gain some knowledge, you can gain some perspectives in a group, but for you to truly absorb that perspective, it happens in isolation. So the more time you start spending by yourself, the more quicker you're going to draw realizations and really apply those realizations into your life, into actionable changes. So you're right. A lot of people are not comfortable in isolation. They're not comfortable with solitude. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we've built so many distractions around us. A lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, we're trying to lead a life based on other people's expectation or the other people's uh, expectations or versions of ourselves. So we're constantly striving to meet other people's standards. And we've not really taken enough time to understand 
what is it that will make us happy? And as a result of that, we're in this rat race of constantly satisfying outside. You know, I think the only way someone's going to really get comfortable with solitude is when they force themselves to take a sabbatical from every single thing. You know, you get off that Facebook, get off watching news, get off everything, say that this is it. I'm going to read a very simple life. If I have to go to work, I'm getting work. I'm coming back home in a certain time. I'm here. There's no TV. There's nothing. You got to, you got to break that habit. Remember the brain likes what is familiar. So you've got to make what is unfamiliar familiar because what is familiar for you may not necessarily be what's good for you. Solitude is not a practice that is familiar with most people. And if you keep sticking with what's familiar, there's no growth. Growth happens out of your comfort zone. What is out of your comfort zone is unfamiliar. So you've got to force yourself to make that which is unfamiliar familiar, that which is uncomfortable comfortable. That's the only way you're going to make that which is impossible possible. Okay. Now, there's no easy way to tell someone to do this. It's not easy. It's tough. You know, cultivating a sense of self-love takes a lot of deep work of peeling away those layers and addressing your pain, addressing your trauma, getting comfortable with yourself in solitude is going to require you spending a significant amount of hours by yourself and not knowing what to do with yourself without uh, your mind's going to race into all sorts of things. The first time you do it, you may not have a pen or paper, but you're going to be forcing yourself to try to make mental notes, which you hope you'll remember later. And then later will come and you probably won't remember it. And then you realize that that's superfluous. Then you sit there. And then after a few months of practicing solitude, you'll start to scratch away at some old pain. And that old pain will bring out feelings that you've been suppressing for a long time. Then you learn to deal with that. That's what solitude does. It makes you deal with things that you've been hiding away for so long. Now, the more you do this, the more you're cleansing. The more you're cleansing, the more comfortable you are going to become with that space. Why are most people uncomfortable in solitude? It's because solitude has been that black door behind which so much of pain is hiding, right? And they don't want to see the pain, so they don't get in front of that door. Everyone is scared that when I'm by myself, I'm going to start uncovering something I don't like. I'm going to start remembering things I don't like. I'm going to start realizing things about myself that I don't like or about the people I love that I don't like. And then what do I do with this? I'm so scared of that. They don't know how to address it, so they stay away from that. You've got to force yourself to shatter open that door and go and face your fears. The Stoics say this, isn't it? Stoicism is based on facing your fears. When you face your fears, your fears are no more uh, fears. They don't, the, the, you realize that your perception of that fear is just a version of reality and is actually not reality. Now, there's no easy way to do this, but this is the only way to do it. When those fears come up, right? When, when you find out, I actually really hate this about myself, or why am I still doing this every single day? I actually don't like it. You know, a lot of people have that with going out drinking. You know, they drink all the time, they go out partying, but at the end of the day, they actually don't like it, but they do it because of social pressures, or you discover stuff about your family that you don't like. What do you do in that moment? Because that's a tough realization, right? Like, how do you process that? Do you just write it down and move on? Or how do you process it? Well, it depends on what stage of life you're in. You know, there are three battles that every individual go through in life. Someone who's anywhere from about 14 till about 30 years old will go through the battle of, it's called an external battle of identity, which means you are trying to establish your identity in the world. You're trying to establish what will the world recognize me as? What will I be identified in? What is that skill set or the title that will make me stand out from the crowd? So how do I fit in and how do I stand out is the first battle and that's an external battle. The second battle that you're facing is an internal battle. The battle of shattering all your limiting beliefs based on the community you grew up, based on the family you grew up, based on everything that you know, you had a few limiting beliefs. I could probably only earn a million dollars. I could only drive this car. I could only live in a home this size. I could only travel in business class. And now you start working and you're shattering all of these beliefs and you start traveling. Maybe you travel in your first, first class flight. Maybe you, you work from $1 million. You realize, okay, I can now earn hundred million or I can earn $10 million. Or I can have this beautiful home here and I can fly in business class all the time. And whatever it is, you share. You start shattering all these limiting beliefs. And that, that's the second battle. And the third battle is the battle of transcendence. When you wake up one day and you realize that all of this money and all of these positions that I have and all of these titles that I have mean absolutely nothing. I will be remembered for how I make others feel and what I give back to the community. Now, that inflection point comes after deep pain. 
Right. But when you get deep pain and you reflect on this, you start using everything that you have, your resources, your energy, your knowledge, your time, your money towards making the community around you a better place. That is a legacy that you want to start building. Okay. So depending on which stage of life people are, they'll all will answer this question very, very differently in terms of what is really important and how will they get comfortable in facing those fears? Because those fears are stemming from each different stage of life. You know, for example, the fear, it doesn't mean that a person who's got all the money in the world and is just trying to establish a legacy doesn't have a fear. He could very well have a fear. You can have a very famous person who's got a lot of money and we see this, we see this even with a person like Bill Gates who's giving away. You still have those people who are saying, you know, he's giving away everything right now because he knows that no one's going to remember him for his company. They're going to remember him for what he's doing, right? So even what he's doing is not going to change his lifestyle in any shape and form, right? And his ego is attached to his legacy. That's a fear. It's a fear he lives with because someone could ask him that question. A child is also fearful of not fitting in or not standing out. These are fears. Fears are part and parcel of our life. But the beauty thing about fear is that fear is linked to the unknown, right? And the unknown is often variables that are beyond your control. And now what you can do is you can do what the Stoics say. You can define your fears because when you define your fears and you understand what is the extent of that fear, and then you try to live that fear, you realize that that fear is no longer a fear because that's not the worst case situation, right? The mere fact that you define it, right? It no longer is a fear because irrespective of what the outcome is, you can live with it. It's the unknown outcome that most people cannot live with. Yeah, it's, it's so amazing that you bring that up. This morning, I was actually reading about Seneca and about how in, in one of his stories to one of his disciples, he was telling him that you should live as a poor man for specific periods of your, time, of your life just to experience what it is to feel your most worst fears in your life. This is the absolute worst situation of your life. And you should, even if you're rich, you should live that for a certain period of time so that you know that if all goes to hell, you're still fine because you've experienced it and you can come out of it. And that's a really interesting point that you brought up. And I, I want to talk about just closing on, on the mental aspects before we go into physical is your journaling practice. What kind of questions do you ask yourself? What do you write about? You know, what, what are you doing during that practice? And is it an everyday thing? Yeah, journaling for me is an everyday thing. And uh, so I go into every journaling practice with a defined purpose. You know, so I go in before I even sit down, I know what I'm going to ask myself. What is it that I'm going to peel away the layers? Perhaps I could peel away the layers of a particular fear. So I never go and say I'm writing about fear. I'm going to say, okay, I've spent a little bit of time before I get to the death thinking, okay, what is the thing that I'm frightened about? You know, and then perhaps I'm fearful of, uh, let's hypothetically say most people are fearful of, picking up COVID. And I say, that's my fear that I have. So I go with a particular thing of defining that. Okay, what is the worst case situation? What's the best case situation? What are my behavior patterns that are driving this fear? How much of this fear is ridden through conversations with friends? How much of it is driven through social media? How much of it is driven through absolute ignorance that I don't even know what's happening? You know, I'll ask myself questions like, am I aware of testing processes? I'm aware of my nearest hospital. Do I have the numbers of these people? You know, I start peeling away the layers of this here in this journaling process, which helps me really define that. Now, that could be an external fear. Sometimes I'm just introspecting on certain pain. Like I was an entrepreneur and I was forced to exit my business at some stage. And I have a look at, okay, you know what? When I exited the business, this was what my perception of that exit was in terms of how I treated, how I was treated. Now I'm sitting here two years have passed by, is my perception still that? You know, after everything that I've learned, has that perception changed? And, and what am I looking at? I'm looking at through that journey process to encapsulate, if I'm saying that I'm grown, how has my perspective grown and changed? You know, I've not really grown if my perspective is exactly the same, isn't it? So how do you quantify your growth in life? You know, you're reading a book every day. You've read Seneca's works. You've read so many people's works. How are you quantifying your personal growth in life? Your personal growth in life will be quantified by the shift in perspective of a pain that you faced, right? If your pain that you faced is exactly the same, if you're feeling exactly the same, if the narration is exactly the same, how can you say you've grown? Where has, where is the growth? So 
this is my journaling process. My journaling process is a beautiful journey of introspection. Sometimes, sometimes I write for five minutes and I meditate for half an hour, right? Because I need to find clarity with what to write. It's not about writing uh, paragraphs and paragraphs. It's not about that. It's about encapsulating with clarity what it is that you want to put down the paper. Sometimes it may just be a word. Sometimes like once I only just wrote a word in the entire journaling process. And that word was shifting teamwork to co-elevation in my core value system. Because I realized that teamwork means that someone could be working to achieve my goal. But co-elevation means that even if they're working for me, we both are helping each other to rise, right? So through after 45 minute meditation, the journaling was only core values, teamwork, scratch off, co-elevation. You know? So journaling is not what people think it is where I need to write and write and write and write. It's not that. It's, it's about peeling away the layers that help you uh, define your growth. That's, that's a huge takeaway for me because I think, you know, we all take in so much information all the time, social media, books, everything, there's information coming from all aspects, but until you actually take the time to write it and peel back and really go through the follow-up questions that come with it, you don't really understand it because you haven't had the opportunity to, you know, push it within yourself. So that's going to, that's going to be something that I start doing from today. Um, I, I want to talk about now the physical aspect. This is something that I really, I really love. And I know, I know a lot of listeners love this is how do you get to a peak physical performance? And I wanted to start with mental because you can't get there without, you know, the mental performance. I want to just start with a very base blanket question. If someone wants to be an athlete in their regular life, right? Like a weekend warrior, are there a few like three to five exercises that you feel everybody should be doing to get to that goal? Well, there's not really three or four exercises in terms of becoming a weekend warrior. There are a few elements that people make quite common. So uh, the first thing is, remember, there's no one size fits all with sport or with training. You know, we cannot say uh, Hussein Bolt may be the fastest man on earth, but he's not the strongest man on earth. Right. And when I put the two of them next to each other, it's very difficult for a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach to tell you who's fitter because the components of fitness vary and each of them excel in a certain component. Okay. So if you want to be a weekend warrior and you want to live a certain lifestyle, you've got to define the parameters are which are needed for you to live the life that you want to and then train in accordance with that. Because what happens is that the human body is very resilient and the more you push it, the more it will develop. But having said that, there are a few mistakes that most people make. One is that there isn't enough development of the lower abdominal and lower core muscles. So the core is actually uh, the lumbar pelvic hip complex. That's actually how we define core in physiological terms. Right? So lumbar pelvic hip complex, which means all muscles that actually attach to your pelvic girdle are actually part and parcel of your core. They contribute to stabilizing your core, okay? Which means you need to stabilize all of that. And not enough work is spent on stabilizing and strengthening the lower core muscles. And a lot of girls do these, what's called Kegel exercises, right? but guys don't do that. And it's equally important for guys as well, right? So how are you strengthening your core? The second big mistake that people make, weekend warriors specifically make, is that 90% of injuries in sport happen in the deceleration phase. Okay. Deceleration means slowing down and nobody trains how to slow down. Everyone trains how to go faster. You train to lift faster, push faster, run faster, cycle faster, do everything. But 90% of injuries are happening in slowing down pace because slowing down muscles are as important as acceleration muscles. Now, all your slowing down muscles are in the back of your body. They call posterior chain muscles, which is your hamstring, your calves, your glutes, your lower back, your upper back. They're your stabilizers. They actually help your posture. So look at the average person. Their posture is completely compromised. Why is their posture compromised? Because they're not strengthening the posterior chain muscles. Why are athletes getting injured in the deceleration phase? Because they're not strengthening the posterior chain muscles. They're not training the stabilizers in there. So whether you want to be a weekend warrior, whether you want to be a professional athlete, training lower core, training posterior chain, training your stabilizers and training your decelerators are exceptionally important for everyone. And this is a starting point. 
From here, we can build into what's called specialization and individualization, where I'm taking into account your entire genetic makeup and the code that you want to train for, and then train you in accordance with that. For the core, it's definitely the base of everything, but there's so many, there's so much information out there about you know, how you improve your core. You know, some people say you should be doing sit-ups, but then I hear also that sit-ups are terrible for your posterior chain. It's terrible for your spine. So you shouldn't be doing sit-ups. Then I hear some people say planks. Then I hear some people say kettlebell swings, right? What are some, you know, core exercises that we all can start doing to build our core? Quite difficult. I mean, right, like you said, doing this basic crunch is really doing nothing for your core. It's creating a lot of hypermobility in the thoracic spine. It's contracting. And what's happening if you're doing a lot of crunches is the abdominal or psoas muscles in the front are tightening up. And that's going to create what's called a tilt in the pelvis, which is going to give you chronic lower back pain. So, uh, so it's not really advisable. And, and, and the other important thing that you should know is that if you're spending time training the body hard, you need to spend at least 50% of that time in looking after the body. So recovery needs to be an important part of your arsenal. So if you're training every day, then once in two weeks, you need to take time off to get a massage. Twice a week, you need to take time to do some restorative stretching, some foam rolling, some trigger point work. That's very, very important. Okay. But when it comes to core, the core is made up of different muscles, isn't it? You know, you've got your obliques, which need to be trained rotationally. You got your uh, lower abdominals, which you can train through leg raises and you can train them multidirectionally. You got your lumbar pelvic hip complex, which you can train your adductors, your abductors by side. So you need to bring core training in with a multidimensional, multidirectional approach. You know, doing a single exercise in flexion extension is definitely not training your core because the core doesn't move in flexion extension. The core predominantly has ball and socket joints in the hips. Right. And ball and socket rotate 360 degrees. So you need that level of multidirectional, multidimensional movement to really do efficient training for the core. Okay. And the problem is that most people resort to upper core, upper abdominal flexion extension thinking they train the core. And actually the rectus abdominis on the upper side is the furthest thing that's away from the core. It's like doing a chest press and expecting to train your core. Okay, it's really closer to your chest than it is to your core, you know, and, and so the best way to approach it is to look at how can I do more multidirectional work. But remember, core is also lower back strength, it's also lower back stability. And for every kg of weight that you lift in front of you, there's an increased stress on the lower back as well, which means that a significant amount of work needs to be done on the lower back. Uh, to stabilize low back. And probably one of the primary movers in the human body is the gluteus medius and gluteus maximus. Just not enough work is done on that there. The, the glute is really the biggest muscle and the strongest muscle in the body. This is why when you go on Instagram and you look at these fitness trainers, their backsides are phenomenally massive because it is supposed to be the biggest muscle. If that muscle is strong and firm, then what happens is you can, it can, it can, help with all locomotory movements, whether it's cycling, whether it's running. And if you walk around on streets, you'll see some people, you know, you look at them behind, there's absolutely no glute at all. You know, their back and their hamstring is just like literally in one straight line. You understand? So the biggest muscle in the body is not even there, right? How are you expected to stay injury free? So, you know, we've got the fundamentals of movement wrong. We've got the fundamentals of training and of understanding human body wrong. And, and I keep telling people, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And what people mistake is that they're tiny primary and secondary movers in your muscular joints, which tear first. In shoulder, for example, very little tearing actually happens on the deltoid muscle, the bicep muscle. The, the easiest thing that tears in the shoulder is actually a labrum, which is like a very thin film. And then you're getting damage to what's called the infra and supraspinatus, which are tiny muscles. The deltoid, nothing's happening to it. The bicep, nothing's happening to it. The subscapularis, nothing's happening to those muscles. Right? So we spend so much of time focusing on these big primary movers that we're neglecting the smaller muscles, which are actually the ones that compensate our posture and create a lot of, and create a lot of pain. You know, it's so funny. Um, I, I just finished doing a marathon a while ago and it left my knees in, in a pretty bad shape. And I went to a physio and he was saying, he literally said, dude, it's like you've never done any adductor or abductor work. 
It's like you've never worked your glutes because we're all working for these show muscles, right? We're all working for how do we look good on Instagram? How do we look good in a t-shirt? But it, there, there's so much more that we need to be doing as the base. So, and, and also I guess from sitting, right? From sitting down all day, like you were saying, our psoas muscles, which is the hip, you're right? It's, it's next to the hip. Yep. From sitting down all day, I guess we're, we're tightening everything up. So is that kind of, uh, what are some stretches that you do uh, to make sure that you are loosening up the hips as well? So the psoas is just above the pubic symphysis and it's going up. It's the lower part of the abdominals and, and your abdominal structure, your rectus abdominals. That's your psoas in the front. Okay. okay. And, and what I do is, I mean, I do a lot of trigger point work. So I work with lacrosse balls. I lie down mm. on the ground. I put them at various points on my abdominals and I just do a bit of deep breathing and I sink into that and I get that to really open up that psoas. I do a lot of trigger point work on the gluteus medius, on the hip flexors in front. Uh, I'm doing a lot of stretching. Once in a while, I get someone to come help me with some PNF stretching against resistance. Okay. And I spend a lot of time doing this restorative work, but I'm also very, very acutely aware of the fact that I'm never pushing my body uh, beyond a certain limit only because uh, I'm not a professional athlete. I work with professional athletes, but I can't risk getting injured. Getting injured for me means that I can't work. It means I can't be in the sports field. I can't do anything. And I'm not competing professionally. So, you know, if I go and run a marathon, uh, can I run a marathon in three hours 15 or three hours 20 minutes? The answer is yes, but I would settle for a 345 or a 340 marathon because that 10 to 15 minutes slower, the only thing that it's my ego that's getting satisfied in that. I'm not going to win a race. I'm nowhere close to winning the race, right? But what that means is pushing that 15 minutes more means another uh, four to five hours more a week in training. It also increases my probability of risk in getting to that race, which I'm really not prepared to, to take on for now. So what I ask people to do is really be very mindful of what they're trying to achieve and how they're going about achieving that. And th this is a huge question that I have and a lot of my friends have too, is you're working out, right? And you're told, Go, go, you know, go all out. Like, don't leave anything on the floor when you leave the gym. But you're you're dead the next day, right? You're you're so sore, you're tired, you feel weak. But then, you know, exercise. I thought it was supposed to make us feel good, right? So, if you had to work out from a scale from one to ten, right? Ten being the hardest workout, you're pushing your PRs, and zero being, you know, obviously a terrible nothing workout. Yeah. Where should you end your workout? What RPE? Well, it depends on what the purpose of that workout is. You know, if you're going out to, for example, um, you know, like a professional sprinter wouldn't do more than uh, two to three flat out 100 meter sprints because it just takes that much. You'll take an hour warming up, you'll do a lot of striding and then you'll sprint probably twice, you know, uh, in that entire routine. So it depends on what you're doing. You know, a power lifter will probably do one heavy lift in an entire session where he's building up to that and loading everything in because it just takes that much out of the body, right? So as an average person, it's, it's important to define what you want out of that workout. If you go into a workout with purpose, you, it's easy to understand what the intensity of that should be. For example, uh, as a runner, are you working on tempo? Are you working on speed? Are you working on endurance? You know, are you working on acceleration sprints? What are you working on? You know, are you working on your cadence? You know, so if you're working on endurance, then, you know, it makes no sense in going so hard in the beginning that you can't build time, you know? So you want to, you could finish that session easily feeling at, at seven, for example, or eight, you know, if you're working on power uh, once a week, you could finish a session feeling a nine or a 10 out of it. But know that if you're feeling a 10, then you're going to take at least 30 to 48 hours before you are completely recovered from that session, which means that the very next day you're going to go into a session, but you, that session, you're going to end that session on a four or three, because that's a completely restorative recovery session. All right. So the higher the number on one day, the lower the number on the next day, it's not possible to be consistently seven, eight, nine, ten every single day in the week. That's a recipe for disaster. Okay. And this is what program design is. You've got to understand how to really balance this up. And you know, you can you can alterate intensity by the way you lift, by the speed, by the duration, by the intensity, by various things you can address it. And that's how you play with program design. When you when you're training a professional marathon, for example, if I'm trying to increase his distance, right, then I drop his speed. 
because he can't run at the same speed over longer distance. He'll get exhausted. So we slow down the speed, we increase the distance. When he gets comfortable with that distance, then we drop the distance and we increase the speed. So we're always playing between speed and duration to increase a person's work routine throughout. On rest days, let's say you're going into a workout. There's a very fine line between you being lazy and your body actually not wanting to go to, you know, it can't go to work out, it's tired. How do you, you know, determine whether I'm being lazy or I should actually push through and go through with the workout? Well, yeah, that's a great question. The only way to really know it is actually with data, you know, you quantifying your, your pathology, you quantifying and, and probably sleep is one of the best ways to look at it. One important sleep marker uh, amongst the various sleep spindles that, that most apps will quantify. So you get your deep REM sleep, your first phase sleep, they're four phases. And, and we, got a, we got a metric called latency. Latency is how quickly do you fall asleep when your head hits the pillow? So some people will say, I fall asleep instantaneously. It takes me one minute and I'm fast asleep. Some people will say that I fall asleep uh, after an hour, right? The optimal latency is anywhere between 12 to 15 or 18 minutes that it should take your body to really come to rest and fall asleep. And falling asleep in one minute and taking one hour are both signs of chronic fatigue for example. So latency could give you a very good indication as to whether you are chronically fatigued uh, or not in that training. You can also look at uh, would my professional athletes I'll be measuring blood lactic acid to see how much of lactic acid is in the body, how quickly are they flushing it out. Uh, you can look at your resting heart rate, for example, you know, uh, when you go to bed, when you wake up in the morning and you look at your resting heart rate, uh, sometimes if your resting heart rate is one beat off, it's a sign of chronic fatigue as well. You know, if it's one or two beats off, it also is a sign that your immune system is compromised. You could be getting sick in the next three to four days. So there's no way to gauge this without looking at physiological data. And this is why we invest so much of time in studying data. And just for all of us, right? So would you recommend, you know, wearing a Fitbit when we go to sleep so that we can test our sleep and see our actual latency? Or, you know, how, how do you kind of go about that for the regular person who wants to so, have this data as well? So I use an Aura Ring and Aura Ring is what I use with all my, all my athletes. Uh, I've not used a Fitbit, so I don't know what the data is like on that. But I think there are tons of sleep apps and sleep wearables right now that you could use. I think any one of these will start getting you into the habit of, tracking sleep and looking at these metric points. The reason I like uh, the order ring is because it doesn't just measure sleep. It also, also gives me important data about my core body temperature. It tracks my movement throughout my day, my caloric burn, and it breaks up all my sleep and it, it quantifies all of these into what's called a readiness score. So it takes my movement, my caloric burn, my core temperature and my sleep into account to give me a readiness score. And I plan my entire day in accordance with this readiness score. So I'm looking and hoping that any particular day when I wake up, I'm 90 plus in terms of readiness. If I'm 90 plus, I go according my day as planned. I can push hard in the gym. Let's assume for some reason I slept late or I didn't sleep well and I wake up and and my sleep score is sitting at about 70, 75. Then I would not push myself in the gym. I get all my cognitive work done as soon as possible because I know that post three, four o'clock, I'm gonna get, be getting uh, cognitive fatigue. I'm not gonna be able to focus on anything. My risk of injury probably is gonna go up quite significantly because I'm not gonna have my mental faculties in place whilst training. So everything's based on data and everything's based on engineering uh, through what's called my readiness score. Wow, that's incredible. I, I have to buy that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on that right now. And I know we're, we're coming toward the end of the interview. I just want to ask one more question before we go into a quick fire round. You, you do intermittent fasting. And I think, again, another thing that has become a buzz, but you've been doing it for a long time. Why? What, first of all, what is intermittent fasting? You know, I know there's varying levels. And why do you think it's important? And, and how has it benefited you? So intermittent fasting is not a diet, it's actually a lifestyle, you know. So I practice what's called, uh, on most days I'm on 18 and six, right? But uh, every now and then I slip into a warrior intermittent fasting, which is 20 hours of fasting with a four hour uh, eating window. And generally I only eat one meal a day in any case, okay? Uh, intermittent fasting is, is really a beautiful methodology to follow because what happens is it's giving your body time to rest and rejuvenate and recover. You see, by constantly eating seven, eight meals a day, you're constantly getting your body to work, 
right? You're constantly getting your body to work. You know, it's a, it's a Western fallacy that you need to feed the body to, and the metabolization of that food produces energy and that energy helps the body heal and perform. That's just a Western fallacy. You see, because Vedic sciences are telling us that healing the body and digestion both require energy. And if you put food in the body, okay, then there's energy required to break down that food. The energy that's going to break down that food is not available towards healing the body. So what they say is that fasting diverts all the energy and available resources in the body towards healing. Okay. Now, we've looked at fasting in various shapes and forms. And what we've seen very beautifully is that, you know, everyone talks about weight loss when you go on intermittent fasting or when you go through a fasting or water fasting protocol. Okay. Now, everyone talks about weight loss, but where is that weight loss happening? That weight loss is happening on your subcutaneous fat. It's happening probably on your lean muscle mass ratios. But there's certain things that lose not even one gram. Your heart doesn't lose weight. Your brain doesn't lose weight. Your liver, your kidneys don't lose weight. All internal organs that are needed for optimal functioning don't lose a single gram, right? Which means that the body has got its innate, intuitive intelligence on how to direct energy resources to, to detoxify, cleanse the body, and bring you to an optimum state of healing. That's what happens in a fasting process. So this is why I really encourage people to, to begin that fasting process because what's happening is you're giving your body a chance to rest. And through that rest point, you're getting a chance to rejuvenate. You cannot consistently put things into your body and expect that the metabolization of those is going to actually heal your body. It's not. That's probably one of the biggest fallacies that there is out there. So they're eating the seven to eight small meals a day is really not advisable at all, especially for a person who is uh, trying to live a normal life, working eight to five, things like that. Your professional athlete is doing a lot of training and, and you're burning seven, 8,000 calories a day in training. It's a completely different story. I would not even give them seven to eight small meals a day. I would structure their meals along an intermittent fasting protocol. Right? Also, intermittent fasting would kickstart the body into a state of what's called ketosis. Ketosis is, uh, in terms of sports, is not preferred for power athletes, it's preferred for endurance athletes, where you're moving them into a state where they're burning ketones as an energy source. Okay, we've seen that ketosis complements endurance activities, it does not complement power activities at all. So based on the type of sport you're doing and the type of activity, we'll even recommend and modify that level of fasting. And, and we work on something called periodization. Periodization is off-season, pre-season, in-season. Right? And we play with this. So in these various seasons, we design how much of training protocols, how much of rest, how much and the duration of your intermittent fasting, even what your fueling should be. And all of this is based on an alignment of what your genetic profile, your gut bacterial profile, and your food and, food and intolerances. That's something I learned from you in a different interview that you did. Everybody should be doing a food intolerance and uh, metal intolerance test, right? Correct, yeah. So I'll put that in a link below that I just ordered from that you guys can use. And I just have a quick question on this. Do you ever do prolonged fasting, like five days, 10 days, 14 days? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very often. I, I do a five to seven day water fast probably once every three months. Just only water. But in that time, I'm at home. And I use that as a complete, uh, uh, even a digital fast. You know, there's no media, there's no TV, there's nothing. It's just myself, just chanting. Sometimes I'll play my harmonium and I'll just practice on that there. But there's no devices, there's no writing, nothing like that. Yeah. Lots of meditation, lots of breath work. Wow. And, and one quick question there. It, does coffee count as fasting or it, does that break in your intermittent, fasting? In intermittent fasting, coffee, black coffee uh, doesn't break your fast. Okay. okay. Uh, once you add milk and sugar, it would. But when I'm doing a water fast for five to seven days, I wouldn't have black coffee as well. But during my intermittent fasting protocol, I would drink black coffee. Wow. Cool. And everybody who is listening, I, I just want to bring up that we will be doing a free giveaway of uh, Shamal's book, Breathe, Believe, Balance. And for 15, 15 lucky people that ask questions for Shamal in the comment section below, the top 15 questions will both get answered and you will get a free copy of his amazing book. And I just want to end with a few quick fire questions, Shamal. Sure, uh, let's go for it. Do you have any, other than meditation, do you have any non-negotiable non -negotiable habits that are part of your day every single day? Uh, 
the non-negotiable. Yeah, it's just the reading and writing, reading and journaling. You know, I'm, mm. I'm an author, so I've got to be writing every single day, irrespective of what it is. So writing and reading is, uh, there's no giving that up at all. Wow. Are there any books or movies that have changed your life? I've been watching a lot, actually. A lot of, uh, I've been trying to consume a lot of content. I think probably the last favorite, favorite thing I watched was uh, The Last Dance that uh, Michael Jordan talked about. Mm -hmm. It was really beautiful. I mean, I've watched things after that, but nothing had that powerful an impact on me. Uh, books I'm reading right now is What Are You Doing With Your Life? with these Jada Krishnamurti, They Never Eat Alone, Keith Ferrazzi. At any one time, I'd have about at least 10 books on the go at once. Wow. And the final question is, is what is something that you believe that other people think is crazy? What is something that I believe that other people think is crazy? Uh, I don't know whether other people think it's crazy. I, I haven't had a chance to tell other people this, but I definitely believe that uh, the impact of social media on our life is not just, uh, is not just what we're talking about in terms of our brain power, but I think that social media is going to erode the entire core value system of society. And the reason why I believe this is because social media is built on a dopamine drive, which is based on instant gratification. And if you look at morals and ethics, uh, lying, right? People lie because the short-term gratification is there. And even though the long-term gratification is not there. So, so people are so invested in short-term gratification that that lying is going to become more culturally ingrained in us. You see, being honest, it doesn't have any short-term gratification. It has long-term peace, but because of everything around us in our wiring, right? We so uh, being sold uh, dopamine drives through social media that what's going to happen in the next couple of years is that that our entire psychology is going to be rewired towards everything being gratified instantaneously and lying dishonesty is one of the things that happens with instant gratification you lie because you get an outcome that you want immediately even though the long-term benefit of it is not good for you right so that's what i believe uh is coming wow delete your social media profiles people <laughs> i'm gonna get on that <laughs> But everybody, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed and learned something from this. I'm going to put out a cheat sheet as usual with all of the major points that Shamal put up. And Shamal, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I learned so much from this. Thank you so much for having me. It was a beautiful chat. I really enjoyed it. See you, everybody. Until the next one. Bye.